To hear the full episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to this and the rest of our catalog of patron-only episodes. So, in any case, let's let's continue, because I think this, this next part is, um, I think we're going to get a lot out of this. So, sticking with uh, Edward's Leaper, Pamela Paul writes, quote, Most of her patients now, she said, have no history of childhood gender dysphoria. Others refer to this phenomenon with some controversy as rapid onset gender dysphoria, in which adolescents, particularly tween and teenage girls, express gender dysphoria despite never having done so when they were younger. Frequently, they have mental health issues unrelated to gender. (laughs) While professional associations say there is a lack of quality research on rapid onset gender dysphoria, several researchers have documented the phenomenon and many healthcare providers have seen evidence of it in their practices. Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) We've arrived at a very pivotal and very irresponsible place. (laughs) Rapid onset gender dysphoria. Ah, You know, the more I've sat with the Pamela Paul column, the more I think it's just a device to launder this concept. That for ideological reasons, can you hear me clutching my pearls? Uh, (laughs) Some people really, really, really don't want to give up this made up concept, right? Rapid Mm -hmm. onset gender dysphoria is the is the fabrication of a social scientist who used to work at Brown, now has left that and, you know, runs her own sort of private anti-trans um, organization. Mm. She, Lisa Littman, she tried really mm-hmm. hard, right? She got like, uh, you know, she got a, a, a publication in a journal and oops, then they kind of had to publish a clarification and a rebuttal and it's been partially retracted and none of the other research trying to validate it has been accepted in legitimate journals. A lot of it, um, some of it hasn't passed uh, basic ethical review guidelines. Uh, some of mm-hmm. it can't pass peer review. You get what I'm saying. It's not real, right? Uh, the idea being um, that, you know, people who aren't trans, young people are exposed to representation or content or meet trans people and are basically, you know, seduced by it through peer pressure. Obviously, it's just a made-up idea that sounds really good. The initial study, you know, was was taken from the really, really objective data of going on anti-trans parental uh, group websites and finding parents there and then interviewing them about their kids, right? Um, And so, you know, Edwards Leeper, right, obviously is part of this political project of pushing this non-existent concept, right? There Mm -hmm. is no rapid onset gender dysphoria. Let's just, let's just put that out there, right? Doesn't actually exist in the world. So Paul is really pushing the boundaries here. And some of the hyperlinks in this paragraph, they all go to Lisa Littman to like discredited (laughs) or, you know, studies that um, scientists can't accept or not even social scientists, right? Mm -hmm. That's, you know, I'm not here reaffirming the charm circle of legitimate science, but just to point that (laughs) out, right? But a couple of things here that, again, I think are supposed to upset the New York Times reader. This concept is, I think, hard to get rid of because it's designed to scare parents. It's designed to provoke anxiety. It's conspiratorial in nature, right? It suggests that impersonal forces like media, social media, are subverting the nation's youth for no real particular reason and with no real particular agents behind them. Right. And so it's this contagion that can enter the home um, and ruin a happy family. And so your child might watch the wrong YouTube video and they might then demand HRT. Yeah. You wouldn't download a gender from the Internet, would you? (laughs) Um, But but like just to say, because this is one of the things that I find really strange um, as someone who knows this stuff inside and out. Right. As someone who's written a book about the history of medicalizing trans youth. 
Edward's Leaper here is saying things that have no basis in empirical reality. Okay. Most of her patients now, she said, have no history of childhood gender dysphoria. Congratulations. Having a history of childhood gender dysphoria has not been a requirement to transition in like quite a long time. It's a meaningless, it's a completely vacuous. First of all, gender dysphoria is also vacuous. We'd have to do a separate episode to get into that. Like happy to talk about it sometime. The term gender dysphoria was invented in the 1970s. None of these people know this. It was invented because they could not figure out a way to produce a legitimate enough diagnosis to control trans people. So they created this really, there is no real classic gender dysphoria. The whole purpose of the term is that it's a syndrome. It's like not actually like a, 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 you know, a top tier diagnosis. It's just a loose collection of things. But the idea that you have to, you know, say ever since I was, as far as I can remember, I just wanted to be a girl. And every night I pray to God, please take away my little child penis. Like that's the old (laughs) 1960s version um, that they used to require, right? That's just something that bourgeois doctors made up because it's a really good rationale. Again, if you're talking to other doctors about why you have to say it's okay for people to transition, right? Well, hello, this 30 year old has wanted to since she was two, right? She's always hated her body so much. She cried every night before sleep her whole life, right? No one actually really felt that way. And for years, trans people are like, that's fine. I'll just say I've had this just this feeling since I was a kid. Fine. If that's what it takes, that's what it takes. Then in the seventies, clinicians are like, oh, everyone's just saying that because it's what it says in the textbook. Like this is not real. We're not really doing anything. So the idea that um, you have to have been able to articulate since age three, that you are, that you had gender dysphoria, mm-hmm. like, excuse me, like that, that's the, that was ever the legitimate bar for letting youth transition. That's just incredible revisionism. It's disingenuous. Honestly, it's completely disingenuous. I don't buy it. Um, and I, if I would have to guess that, that Edwards Leaper is quite aware of what she's claiming on some level. Um, but yeah. And then, so it's like, this is laundering something just completely fabricated, right? Um, that, that, you know, up until 2007, trans kids were probably trans because they, they were screaming, you know, when they were one and a half, uh, that I have gender dysphoria, right? Like just this total made up fantasy that clinicians would come up with when they're trying to discredit this generation who aren't doing that, right? Like, mm-hmm. are, are we really, are we really supposed to believe something that vacuous? Again, the the language Paul uses here verges on, I think, malpractice, uh, except that it's an opinion column. So technically, you know, it's not breaching um, journalistic standards. While professional associations, Paul writes, say there is a lack of quality research on rapid onset gender dysphoria. That's not what they say. <laughs> they say it doesn't exist, right? It's I could go out tomorrow and publish a paper on on my blog, right? That said that getting too much sun causes transgenderism. And that would be equally as scientifically valued and empirically true as rapid onset gender dysphoria. Just to say that, that would be just as true, right? So it's not just like, well, the research could, we need more, no, it's just not a real thing. It's it's an anti-trans political talking point that was invented to smear and libel Mm -hmm. (laughs) youth transitioners. And then this other line, many healthcare providers, Paul writes, have seen evidence of it in their practices. I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, again, it's like, Someone told you over dinner, congratulations. Like, <laughs> as we know, everyone always tells the truth all the time, um, except trans people, right? But everyone else in the world always tells the truth faithfully. And when they say they've seen something, 
that is repeated ad nauseum in the media and has a political ideological agenda loaded into it, obviously they're just being value neutral, right? The thing that doesn't exist and that there's no way to meaningfully assess, they actually have real evidence for, of course, like some guy told her, right? A friend of a friend of mine. So it's just like, this is actually, I think the part of the piece that's quite dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, it's, 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 it's smart to find this in our culture. Our media culture is, is just chock full of these people who are like, I used to be so-and-so. And then I, and now I'm a brave truth teller who critiques right. my former industry, right? So Edwards Leaper is a very strong vehicle for articulating this anti-trans talking point and giving it the veneer of legitimacy. And Paul just sort of shows up to kind of muddy the waters epistemologically to create a kind of sense that, well, this, this, I mean, it's one of these statements, rapid onset gender dysphoria is an effective ideological device because it's the kind of thing that makes a series of claims that could feel like they were true to the target right. population, to parents. It might feel like that in the way that parents always feel that young people's use of novel technology and media is some conspiracy undermining their authority. And you know what? Maybe it does undermine their authority because, you know, the basic dilemma, the basic scene or scenario of rapid onset gender dysphoria has always been so laughably easy to explain in a non-transphobic way, right? The, the classic scene is you have a kid, it's probably someone you consider your daughter, who's always just been so happy, totally fine. We have the perfect family. I never ask her how she's feeling because I just know she's okay. And then one day she comes to me and tells me she's transgender, she has gender dysphoria, and all of a sudden, She's really upset about how she feels about her body and she wants to transition. What a shock. It came out of nowhere. She must have been tricked into it, right? The most, <laughs> any reasonable human being could very easily turn around and say, it sounds like you don't have a very close relationship with your kid and they didn't feel safe telling you until now. So you just didn't find out something that they've been working towards on their own, probably for years in most cases. And like, Got to take the L on that one. But no, mm -hmm. we can't. We have to convert this into a pathology, into a disease circulating in the world and affecting our youth because we cannot possibly admit that parents routinely <laughs> create family environments where it is not easy to realize you're trans. I mean, this yeah, just has like, absolutely. you know, echoes of something I ended up riffing on in my first book many, many years ago, you know, mm -hmm. riffing on an old Eve Sedgwick essay, How to Bring Your Kids Up Gay, where she just takes the task the absolute ridiculousness of the idea that children are persuaded by the culture they live in to become gay. Like, what about our culture encourages people to be gay? It is the least encouraged thing possible. She's writing this, you know, in the early 90s. Well, I wrote, you know, in the conclusion of my book about how to bring your kids up trans, like the absolute fatuous proposition that our culture encourages people to be trans. It is so hard to figure out you are trans. Like you, you <laughs> trans people do not reproduce literally. We, we barely reproduce socially, right? Like, tra like trans youth have to, in the middle of the environment they live in that completely denies the possibility of their existence, pull this remarkable thing right out of their own selves and have the courage to tell people who have so much real power over them like power of life or death in many cases, right? And, you know, I think this is a place I want to get to at the end of this conversation, but like the kind of romance of the white bourgeois family going on here, where it's like, it's never even a question that like a child coming out, it's number one fear might be getting kicked out of the house or getting like abused or beaten for being trans. Yeah. 
are Mm -hmm. losing all financial support, being unhoused, right? These are very common outcomes, but the universe of rapid onset gender dysphoria can't have us acknowledge any of that. No, no, no. It's the children who are so powerful, they are humiliating and controlling their parents. And for no real reason other than they watch YouTube. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. This is the worldview we are being asked through the vehicle of this clinician to accept as our reality. I mean, I'm I'm berating it because it's so outrageous. It is. It's so hateful of young people. And it is such an intense flight from responsibility for the power that has been naturalized in the private family, the place where most abusive children happens. And it's just like, that's the one thing I've just never been able to accept about rapid onset gender dysphoria. It's so laughably easy to dismiss, but it is such a disturbing disavowal of the actual power relations that affect young people. I don't just mean trans people, but all young people in the world that we live in. This is a device for normalizing the total lack of power that children are supposed to have. Uh, And it's just, it's so gross uh, to see all of that anxiety produced by our culture downloaded onto, devolved onto trans kids so we can cut them off from the social body and eject them and save Mm -hmm. the fantasy of the normal, innocent American family. I mean, what a disgusting, disgusting proposition that is that we're being asked to endorse that I just really think to me this is the core 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 moment in this piece that we are supposed to resuscitate this laughably useless uh, fake concept because it allows us to go all in on the precise Mm -hmm. number one most harmful institution to trans youth the family but that's maybe why we have to constantly come back to it and save it because we cannot admit that in reality the real suffering that most young people are going through is in their own families. Anyways, yeah. I'm going to stop there. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I'll talk for 30 minutes. But ugh. I just wanted to say quickly, I mean, nothing to add, just plus one to everything you said, Jules. But, you know, the, the thing that's so frustrating about this Pamela Paul piece is it kind of engages in exactly the same genre as this discredited paper from Littman that we've been talking about, right? Because, like, yes, that paper was methodologically bunk, right? Like, she went on blogs and forums where parents who believed in this idea uh, congregated uh, sent them a leading survey and asked them to armchair diagnose their own children with dysphoria and whether or not they actually met those criteria. And then was like, oh, surprised that it turned out terrible, right? But the study itself and the methodological problems with the study, while that is definitely top line, those are not the parts of the study that had power, right? It's when that study like mm. became fodder for you know YouTube posts and Substack posts and Reddit posts and and discussion and things like you know Pamela Paul's piece is actually doing its its own work the same way, right? Where it's like the opinion piece itself is disseminated as if it is like reported fact that has been, you know, highly vetted and verified and that confusion and that kind of veneer of authority and boundary monitoring and maintenance that I think is really kind of part of the genre that both that paper and Pamela Paul's piece are in. It's like the the thing itself doesn't matter. It's like what happens when that thing is out in the world and reproduced? What happens when that thing is delivered back into the hands of the community who prefigured its existence, right, and used as a weapon against 
you know, what the target is, whether that's like, you know, trans care itself or trans people specifically, right? Like it doesn't really matter what the intentions that Pamela Paul had were or, you know, the fact that this is like a an error filled piece, right? Like and the study itself, again, the author was like, well, I made some mistakes and I didn't intend for this to be like a, a damaging study. I just do think that a lot of people, quote unquote, like get over it and and that these are people who are going to quote unquote grow into um, gay and lesbian adults who are being redirected into medicalization. Like, so, you know, these people, they hide behind the intent and they hide behind like the fact that like, oh, this is just, you know, um, this is just a study, right? This is just one study. I'm just asking a question or, or this is just an op-ed, right? But then these things have real power, right? Like this mm-hmm. bunk study is, study is cited all across you know, other things that reproduce this idea, legislation, uh, in lawsuits, in court filings, Pamela Paul's piece. Again, it took four days to make it into a legal filing in support of a bill to restrict care. So, you know, these these pieces have a power that just is inherent to their existence in some ways that people frame it, right? But what's actually most important is the way that it's reproduced and the the sort of incessant reproduction of these ideas, which is how you sort of maintain these boundaries around, you know, who is a quote unquote acceptable person and who isn't ultimately, because I think, you know, the New York Times is very much taken this on as kind of like a pet issue the last couple of years in particular, and they've really doubled down in terms of their coverage. And now we see, you know, the the tremendous power of not just the fact that it's coming from one node and incorrect, but in the reproduction of these things over time, yeah, right? I mean, I was going to save this for uh, the conclusion of our discussion, but what it is is really, I mean, the only social contagion going on here is anti-trans ideology, yeah. honestly. And to that point, actually, I find it hilarious that um, I feel like we probably will skip this part, but there's this whole part that comes just after this about how you know providers who think that there should be impassable gatekeeping, essentially, on kids' ability to transition. You know, one of these people that they mention is a person who was a marriage and family therapist who decided to be anti-transition, quote unquote, after coming across detransition videos online. Yeah. So, you know, again, who's which one is the social contagion here? Perhaps their belief is so powerful because they themselves have been duped. And so they think it's very real that it's very easy to be convinced one way or another about being trans if you just spend enough time online because that's how they were convinced. They listened to a record album backwards and it convinced (laughs) them to, yeah. uh, Well, that that counselor, (laughs) Stephanie Wynn, um, as was reported on Assigned Media's breakdown of this piece, uh, once, you know, slightly tongue-in-cheek encouraged parents to come up with any way you could to force your children, you know, to stop being trans. She called these thought experiments. Like, imagine the things you know, we, we could do. Ha, 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 we wouldn't, right? And one of them was that parents could stick their children <laughs> Unless, with needles. Oh, my God. What? To stop them from being trans. She was just joking, of course. <sighs> I mean, this is, these are the people presented as, as brave people we should really pay attention to. To hear the full episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to this and the rest of our catalog of patron-only episodes. And be the first to get a new patron episode every Monday when it drops. With love, the Death Panel.